some time in the uh, book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be there again today, somewhat. Um, I have, for those of you who are locals here, I kind of have uh, been teaching off of a little silly drawing I in my head kind of have fabricated up, and I've said this is kind of my outline for the book of Ephesians, the whole thing right here. And for sake of review, if you have your Bibles... Uh, open up with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read a couple verses, kind of give you the direction we're going for you, for those of you who uh, are not normally with us here. Before we do that, let's open up our time in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, so much for your son, uh, who he is to us today, what he means to us. And we have access now to this throne of grace. And Lord, I would petition uh, that very throne of grace now. You tell us we can come and find help there. Lord, I need help. We all need help as we open up your word and we teach and we listen, Lord. We need help from your throne. Let us be not just hearers of the word, but doers, Lord. May your word transform us today. Uh, help your minister now, we pray in your name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1. And I had made the claim, the statement, that verse number verse number 3 through verse number uh, 6 there. Is kind of the summary statement of the whole book. You can find everything, uh, everything that's found. Sorry, you guys can't really see, but you, you know what's going on. Uh, everything that you're going to find in the book books, in the book of Ephesians, can really be summarized in those first few verses. Blessed be, he said, Paul says in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he says this in four, even as he chose us, you have been chosen. You have been selected in Christ. Here we are. This is going to be the train is the engine. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the engine that is powering what I've been calling the mechanics of grace. He is the power. We are in him. There's us. There's Al right there. We are in him. And the Father is the fuel that is fueling this, this whole thing. And we're not going to get into the details of that. If you have questions, we can, we can talk later. But Paul makes these three statements right here. He says, even as he chose us in him, and we have been chosen, selected, to what end? And it is this, that we should be holy and blameless, that we should be adopted as sons, and that we should be to the praise of the glory of his grace. And we had spent how many weeks? Four or five weeks. And what Paul does is that as you move through this book, it's like we get to come up to this box car. The first one we approached was holy and blameless. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at what does it mean to be holy? Huge subject in the Bible. Overwhelming subject in the Bible. And Paul says, guys, you are holy. We talked about that as in, in, by definition, if, my, if I was going to coin my definition, it's, it's the character and the nature of God is what holiness is. And now that's how Paul describes you. You are holy. I am holy. Praise the Lord. And in chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 1, verse 10, man, it's like we get to walk up to this box or we get to open up the doors. And there are boxes inside. We get, this is what grace means. Grace upon grace is what he says in his what John tells us in John 1, grace upon grace. And we get to come and we get to open up these, these boxes and go, it's like Christmas. Ooh, what's inside? What's in store for us? What do we get in Christ? And we looked at first, redemption. Separation was the idea. Separation from the world unto Christ. 
the first movement of holiness, everything in God's economy that is holy was redeemed first, everything. Second, we looked and I, I, I kind of coined that redemption is kind of the past work of holiness. And really in, in the scriptures, when you talk about, when the authors write about redemption a lot, it's in the past. You have been redeemed. But then Paul moves on in verse, uh, <clears throat> verse number, sorry, and I'm going to fly through this because i got a lot to share today. But in verse number 9, he says he's going to reveal to us the mystery of his will. Present tense, now as we walk in this world, what does God want me to do with my life? This is holiness. Because what he's going to do, if you're seeking his will and you are following his will, he's going to start like the master sculptor that he is. He's going to start transforming you into the image of his son by simply yielding and obeying and submitting to his will. And then finally, we, we looked at the last, the last thing that Paul brings out, and there's probably way more to it than this. This is just my little finite brain, but he says in verse 10, to unite all things in himself. That's the future tense. That's where it's all working towards. Why is God, why has he made you and me holy? It's because one day we are going to stand in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, that's what Paul says throughout this book, in him. And so that's where it's all working towards. And so that is holy and blameless. We have, we've spent quite a bit of time covering this. Now we're going to undertake another really big subject. And it's this word, this term, Adoption. I have been studying this for probably six weeks, and I will tell you I am overwhelmed. Kind of like everything I do in the book of Ephesians. I am overwhelmed. It's the whole story of humanity. Adoption is everything. And I want to show you what I've learned, or what I hope I hope to show you what I've learned. And so today, we are going to begin to undertake, and I'm going to just do kind of like I did with holiness. I spent a day, and we just looked at what does it mean to be holy? We looked at that story in Exodus 19, that picture that God is up on that mountain that burned with fire. And the people were down here in the camp. And there was separation because those people, their character, their nature, the Bible calls them sinful. That's our nature. That's who we are. Caleb said that this morning. It's who we are. It's not what we do. God is holy. It's who he is, not what he does. And because of that, it's like a fish and a giraffe trying to live together. They can't do it. The natures are too opposed to each other. <clears throat> so I want to spend some time and just do a bit of an overview, a summary, and I'm going to take a couple weeks on this to look at what does adoption mean. It's huge. Like I said, overwhelming study in the scriptures. So what does the Bible say about adoption? Well, Paul is going to expound on this truth in verses 11 through 14. You can find our little little neat graph there, or a little drawing in uh, chapter 1, 11, verse, through chapter 1, 14. He's going to expound on this. Again, we're going to get to open up, and we're going to get to look and see if I'm adopted. What does that mean? Well, the first thing Paul says is that you've received an inheritance. I, we start digging into that. That's going to be another massive study, the inher- your inheritance in Christ. Try to tackle that one. <clears throat> so he's going to begin to expound on it. But before we get into Paul's revelation again, I'm going to spend some time, and I just want to walk through and examine the scriptures and dig in to find out what does the Bible tell us about this idea of adoption. <clears throat> so Paul says we are adopted as sons. What can we glean 
from the scriptures and learn of this idea of adoption. I'd like to say from the very get-go, I'm going to make a shocking statement, maybe not, um, but I believe that our, our Western idea of what adoption is or has been, it has maybe corrupted what the biblical intention of the word adoption uh, truly means. Our idea, our Western idea of adoption has maybe tainted uh, what the biblical understanding of adoption is. In our Western idea, in our Western way of thinking, adoption has come to mean something along these lines. Uh, 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 let's say John and I want, we actually were toying with adopting a kid before we had kids of our own. We, we actually were talking about it. We're talking seriously. And let's say John and I move forward and we want to adopt a child. Well, well, let's, well we're going to get a list of uh, a bunch of Romanian kids. Cute Romanian, man, those cute kids. And usually that list is a list of a bunch of unwantables. These are kids that nobody wanted. Castaways, throwaways. And we look, we go, oh, look at that little blonde-haired kid. Oh, he's so cute. I'm going to pick that one. That's the one we're going to take. And adoption almost comes, it almost carries a bit of a, a negative connotation to it in our society. Why do I say this? Because it, it goes something like this. When a parent adopts a child, th- there's the question, so, so are you going to tell them they were adopted? Are you, are you, as the kid gets older, are you going to tell that child that, that they were adopted? And I would look and say, why not? Why not? Because especially biblical adoption, biblical adoption is not about a, a family or a person who didn't want a child. Biblical adoption is the story of a father who did. That's what we read in Ephesians 1.4. Listen, even as he chose us, you've been chosen by God. Do you understand that? You and me. The father looked and said, guys, I chose you. That does something to my heart. You're chosen by God. Listen to what he says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be, and I'm going to skip ahead, predestined for adoption as sons. What a beautiful truth. Adoption is not a story of some family or or mother that didn't want this child. It's a father who said, I choose you. It may surprise you to find out, it did me, that adoption is nowhere in Jewish teaching, culture, or tradition. There is none. Under the law, there was really no such thing. Under the law, if a father died, if I I passed away, and this wouldn't really work in my case because I have a brother, but if I died, let's say Caleb dies, then the next kin would be Lucas. And Lucas would take the family. It was that was the kinsman redeemer story. Would go to the next nearest kinsman. So adoption really in Jewish culture was was fairly fairly irrelevant. And so throughout the Old Testament, adoption is all but missing. When you study through the the Old Testament, you're, you're going to be hard pressed to find stories of adoption. Moses and Pharaoh, but that was a Gentile. He took unto his house. So this starts to raise some questions. Because the only uh, New Testament writer to write about this, the only writers in the New Testament that write about this would be Paul. He's the only one. 
He was a Roman citizen. And they believe, commentators believe, that that's where his idea, possibly, you know, I don't want to add too much weight to this, but it is an interesting thought. They believe that Paul's understanding this, this idea of adoption came from his uh, 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 upbringing and understanding of the legal culture of the Roman, in the Roman culture, the legalities of adoption. So that got me studying. Well, what did, what did Roman adoption look like? The word in the Greek, the word adoption that we read here in Ephesians chapter 1, he predestined us for adoption. The word in the Greek is a compound word. It's hui thesia, H-U-I-O-T-H-E-S-I-A, hui thesia. And it's two words, huos, the son, and tithomai, to set, place, appoint, or fix. To set, appoint, or place a son. And I will add... This is my interpretation. I'm going to show you where I believe this comes out. It, I will, I will uh, in almost restructure uh, the, the, the uh, definition a little bit. I will say this, to appoint an error. So here's the idea in ancient Roman practice. This is a quote out of a historical book. In his biography of Coriolanus, the ancient historian Plutarch says, <clears throat> it was customary with the Romans of that age when they were moving into battle array and were on the point of taking up their bucklers and girding their coats about them to make at the same time an unwritten will or verbal testament and to name, listen to this, to name who should be their heir in the hearing of three or four witnesses. So from what I understand, it would work something like this. Let's say a man has 12 sons. He would look... You know, let's like in this story here, you're about to go to war, so you're thinking, well, I'm, I could die soon, so I better Huey Thacey, I better name the, uh, the, the heir, I better appoint the heir, who's the next one in line? Well, in, in, in uh, Jewish tradition, it was the firstborn. That was not necessarily the way it worked in Roman tradition. You would look, let's say you had 12 boys, and look at those boys, and go, that one, that, that's the heir right there. That was the Huey Thacey. He would appoint the heir, the son. <clears throat> to appoint an heir. And so adoption had much less to do with taking some boy who wasn't your own as your own. Now I emphasize much less to do because in the case, let's say I'm a father and I do not have a son. Well, this is where it moves into the grounds of our more understanding of our Western adoption. If you didn't have a son, you would typically go, all right, and it was always, it was normally some sort of kin. It wasn't just looking the Romanians out and, you know, across the other side of the world going, no, it was, you would pick an heir, uh, 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 some sort of kin, a stepson, a nephew, some well, uh, very influential political leader who had a lot of stuff, and he would say, I need an heir. Who's the next heir? And he might take even a slave at times. There were Caesars who took slaves in their house, made them citizens, and then became the heir of that family. But that was fairly uncommon. Typically, the Huey Thacia meant, where are my sons, and who is the heir? It's him. That's the one. So again, there was... There was a side where you would take a son that wasn't your own, but it was always for the purpose of naming a new heir, naming the heir. 
that concept is portrayed in the story of Ben-Hur. Okay, yeah. Actually, I read that somewhere. That's right. That's right. Actually, I read that as I was studying this, the story of Ben-Hur. You're right. And he was a slave, right? Judah Ben-Hur was a slave. And then he became a, a regent, I mean, a co-regent with that. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, again, so, so it was much less about taking on just some random child. It was all about naming an heir. So I want to stretch your understanding a little bit of what adoption is in the scriptures. Again, if you apply our Western thinking to this, this idea of adoption, we often hear it some, something taught this way, that, that God, he had his earthly family of Israel, and, and they were the people of God, those were the children of, children of God, he loved them, his favor was on them, and the rest of the world were these, these Gentile dogs. That had, they had no claim on God's covenants. They had no claim on God's promises. And God, out of the goodness of his heart, he had compassion on them. And he adopted these worthless Gentiles into his family. Now, I will say, that is very true. That What I just said is absolutely true. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated, alienated, strangers, no hope, without God. Verse 13, though, and praise the Lord for the blessed but. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So I will say that that idea very much is there, but I'm going to challenge the idea of adoption, meaning that scripturally. Listen to what Paul says. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. This is what really put a wrench in all of my thinking right here. Romans chapter 9. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. Wait a second. I just thought adoption was these Gentiles that God took unto himself. We just read here, to the the nation of Israel. To them belong the adoption. Doesn't seem to work, that, that traditional idea we have of adoption. So what I want you to start to see is this, is biblical adoption is not as much about a child or a group of people who were unwanted, and God in his compassion had pity and brought these this group or this child in as a child. It's much less that idea. Biblical adoption is the story of, of Jacob and his 12 boys. That's, be- it's the, that's the story. Those 12 boys, and, and, and Jacob went and looked. That number 11 boy, that Joseph, that is the one. And put a coat on him. That's what we're going to see adoption is all about. This is the air. This is where all the blessing is going to flow. Adopt that. That's the adopted one. Who's the heir? Joseph, that's the one. He's the heir. Give him the coat. And all dad's stuff is going to go to him. Well, Ephesians might be shocking to find out. Paul is trying to tell you that, guys, the Father has a lot of stuff to give away. And who's it going to? Fitting that he would now bring in the idea of adoption. 
Who's the heir? This is the heart of adoption. This is at the very heart here. I want to consider one more point before we get into some biblical examples. I want you to understand, I said as I began studying this, I was just like overwhelmed of the magnitude of this, the size of this. I want you to understand the, the scope and the size, the magnitude of this truth we're considering. If I were to draw, or if I were to ask you to draw a history, a timeline of humanity, this is going to be a really rough sketch, but it would go something along these lines. Creation, back here, uh, there was, you know, and again, you could put a, a hundred things on here, but it would look something similar to this period was Israel. Sorry for my handwriting there. Right here is the cross. This is the church age. And here is the kingdom back here. The return of Christ is in there. But it would look something, you see what I'm saying. It would have, it would have Israel, the cross, the church, and we'd move along through, through, through time and space. Well, I want you to see the size, how big this lesson is. Ephesians 1, I will remind you again, in Ephesians 1 verse 4, Paul tells us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons. Our story starts before the world even began. The Lord Jesus and the Father had in their minds a plan in their heart, the work of adoption. This is where our story begins. Before the world was ever created, that's where adoption began. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. And the story continues on. We already read in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, to them belonged the adoption. This will chart our path right through the story of Israel. Then we go to Galatians chapter 4. Flip over there one page behind if you're in Ephesians 1. Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> and I had said adoption is direct. It's all about the error. Listen to what Paul says here in Galatians as he tells us about this adoption. Uh, actually, go back to chapter 3 and let's start in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs! Heirs, don't miss that word, according to promise. Chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the father of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are an heir. So we see... As we chart through time and space, now Galatians 4 brings us into the church age. There's no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no male or female. We're all one in Christ in the church that carries us through the church age, the story of adoption. And we see here in Galatians 4, actually, uh, yeah, Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law. Listen to this phrase right here. To redeem those who are under the law so that, so that we might receive adoption. Adoption is the objective of redemption. Redemption is not the end of God's work. Adoption is. All things are moving towards the final adoption of humanity. It's all moving towards it. It's the story of all humanity. Before the world was formed, all the way through Israel, all the way through the church, and we're going to find now, turn over to Romans chapter 8, we're going to finalize this all the way through to the end as all of creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for the adoption of the sons. Romans chapter 8, let's jump in at uh, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And here it is again. If children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Praise the Lord. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that is the end of the end of the story. Well, the story as we know it, it carries us all the way to the end. This sto- this lesson of adoption, it just as I studied it, it was like, wow, where do you begin? It's the whole course of humanity. So we can't do that. We can't. I'll be up here for a long time, but. I do want to take us into the scriptures and just try to glean, and this is going to take me a couple weeks, I want to glean just some ideas of what adoption looks like biblically. So turn in your Bibles. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 15 the next couple weeks. Turn to Luke 15, the very famous story of the prodigal son. I believe this is a beautiful picture of biblical adoption right here. Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, the story of Joseph, the story of Jacob and Esau. You know, if you want to understand Romans 9, as Paul will say to Israel, belong to the adoption, and you follow chapter 9 of Romans, that's the whole story. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He looked and said, this one, the younger one, he is going to be the one that the blessing goes to. Huey Thamos, this one, appoint the heir. Clearest pictures in the Bible of, of adoption. And the story of the prodigal son, it's probably one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. Um, uh, Mark Twain said, uh, and no shocker here, but it was the greatest short story ever written, was the, was the prodigal son. It has all the elements. Again, no shocker that the God of the universe could write the best short story ever, right? <laughs> As I began to study this, though, I quickly realized that you cannot teach verse 11 to 32. You cannot teach it. 
as a standalone story. It cannot be done. It should not be done. The Lord says in verse number 3, listen to this, chapter 15, verse number 3, and we're going to go a little bit into the context of what he says here. But he says this, so he told, it says this, so he told them this parable. Well, wait a second. And as you go through here, first he tells the story of a, a man who had a hundred sheep and he loses one. And he goes after the one to find it. Then he goes into a story of a woman who had ten silver coins. She loses one and she wrecks her house to find this one coin. Then he goes into the story of two boys that a father had and one was lost. And the great lengths the father goes to to get this son You have to understand all three of them, and that's why it says he told them this parable. They, In my opinion, they are made, intended to be taught as one unit. So I'm going to attempt, with whatever time we have left, I'm only going to look at, are we done already? Okay, all right, good. All right, so did we start late? Okay, good. All right, good. Okay, so all I want to do today is I want to just examine just this first parable. That's all. Just look at the first. And I only really want to look at three words in this parable. So, so we might make it. Three words, that's all. <clears throat> the story of the prodigal loses meaning if you do not understand the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 and the woman in search of the lost coin. So some context For this chapter, if you flip back to the chapter before, and we're not going to really read any of it, but I just want to set the stage here. Chapter 14, verse 1, on the Sabbath, he's dining in the house of this Pharisee. He's eating in the house of this Pharisee, and they're watching him. We're trying to criticize him. I mean, they're under a magnifying glass, examining anything he does wrong that we can bring accusation against. And the Lord perceiving, he knows, and he begins telling them stories. He starts telling them stories. In verse 7, he tells them a story. He says, when, in verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they, were, uh, how they chose the place of honor, saying, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor unless someone more. We know the story. Don't sit in that head table place, because then the master of the feast comes in and he says, uh-uh, that ain't for you, and he puts you down at the foot. Don't do that. But my point is, he tells them the story of this wedding feast, this feast that's going on, this banquet that's going on. Then you go to verse number 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, same story almost. He's telling, he's going to tell him a story about a, a banquet or a party or a feast going on. He says, don't invite your friends and the wealthy. and the. <clears throat> then in verse number 16, he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Again, he tells him the story of this, this big feast going on. In this story, the ones that he originally invited... They rejected. They said, well, we're not interested. And so he sends the message out to the highways and the byways. You invite anybody who will come and fill the seats of this feast. And the very last phrase of the chapter, pay attention to it. The very last phrase says this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. My Bible, that's red letters. The Lord's saying that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now look at 15 verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. I think that is beautiful. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And those fair, those sinners, they drew near. And the Pharisees start looking at him. And they see these sinners, these vile, wretched sinners. And they're sitting at the same table with them. Can you imagine How? How? 
does he sit at the same table with? Sinners! It's like the Lord says. Sit down, boys. I'm going to tell you a story. Guys, this is adoption. How do you, or how do I, have to claim like Mephibosheth to eat at his table? This is adoption. What right do you have? Sit down, boys. And he told them this parable. So read with me in verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. What I want you to begin to see in this story, what I want you to understand is your adoption, your right to ultimately, like the Lord was laying out in chapter 14, there's this banquet feast coming, guys. There is a party coming. And you're invited, but what right do you have to sit at that table? And what I want you to begin to see in this parable here, that your adoption is the direct result of the combined working of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all three and their responsibilities are represented in these three parables. The first one, parable one, this shepherd, this man who loses a sheep and he goes after him. We are going to see this is the work of the Son. The second parable, this woman who loses a coin and she sweeps the whole house in search of this lost coin of value. We're going to see this is the work of the Spirit. And the final story, the one that the father loses that son with a yearning in his heart to bring that son back. We're going to see this is the work of the father. And so again, I want to pretty much chop down each parable to just three words. That's all we're going to do. Three, maybe four in one. And it might be phrases, but three words. First thing I want you to notice in this story and the others alike, that all three of these parables have something in common. The first was the shepherd had a hundred sheep. He had one hundred sheep and he lost one. The woman, she had ten coins and she lost one. And the father had two sons and he lost one. Again, this is something important to consider concerning adoption because our idea in Western, this Western way of thinking was there's just some unwanted, unwantable that I just, I want a child, so I'm going to take him unto myself. I don't think that's accurate. The father had two sons and he went to great, great lengths. That's what we're going to see in all three of these stories. It's going to be combined all together the great lengths the father went to to restore this boy, Huey Thamos, to appoint the heir, to set him back up in that place of blessing as the heir. But we read in verse 4, 
Okay, jump in here with me. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? I want to key your attention in on the word leave. That's our first word. And there's a lot of disagreement here. If you read commentaries on who, where this man was, you know, he left the 99. Who was that? Where were they? And I'm not even going to try to jump in on that argument. But I do believe in the original, I can show you an idea of what was happening here. It's going to, it's going to kind of take our attention to where this one left and where he came to. Watch this. The word leave, the word leave in the original is the word kata liepo. Kata, it's a, it's again a compound word. Kata means down from, down from, toward, along, or through. And liepo means to leave behind, or to leave, to leave behind or forsake. The first important thing to notice about this story, this one, this one, he has left behind and forsook something. I'll let your mind wander here. It's not a tough one, but he left something above and he came down. That's in the original what the word means, to come down, to leave, to leave behind and forsake. Then it says this. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country? And then this phrase right here, I think all translations translate it the same. And go after her. He goes after the shepherd. He leaves and he goes after. Well, what does that mean? Again, it's two words here. Epi porio, go after. Epi means upon, on, at or by. And this is thanks to Mr. H.A. Ironside. He said this right here in Luke 15.4. The word epi, if it has the accusative in it, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm just reading guys that are smarter than me. Don't even know what the accusative means. But if it has the accusative in it, okay? If it has, hey, I'm not, <laughs> if it, I can read. That's enough, right? If it has the accusative in it, it implies Downward pressure. It denotes extended motion downward from heaven to earth. Again, in this word, it has the idea that this one was up there somewhere. He was up, and he's come down on this rescue mission. If this rescue mission is going to take place to find the sheep, he's got to come down. He's got to forsake and leave wherever he was. But then the second word, porio, very interesting word. It's a Jewish idiom, but the word means to lead over, to carry over, or continue on a journey. And it is a Jewish idiom, meaning to depart from life. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? To depart from life. So this one, this shepherd in our story, he is left behind. He is forsook up there to come down on this mission. And depart from life. It's in the original. It's all there. Amazing. But then it says this. He goes after the one that is lost. Oh, this word right here. This is the best word in this whole parable. Seven times this word is used. And every one of you are here should say amen. Because he says this. He goes after the one until he finds it. Until he finds it. 
Seven times. It's used more in this chapter than anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, in my Bible, over the chapter 15, I wrote, found. This is the story found. He finds it. Heurisco is the word, the Greek word. It means to be found or to be recognized. That shepherd, that's my sheep. That's the one. To be detected or to show oneself out, to be found out, exposed. This is going to come into view in the next story because the woman, she turns the lights on and and they're exposed. Oh, this is all part of the process. Exposed, or it means this. I love this phrase right here. It means to get knowledge of or come to know God. And I asked the question as I was studying this. How far is the shepherd willing to go? How far is this one willing to go? I thought about my I could not. I could not not think about my own testimony. I was in a crack house in Wyoming in the pit of destruction. You, you, you wouldn't have even gone into this house. It was so disgusting. And the people that were there were filth. I was one of them. And I remember on October 12, 2000, I remember coming to the end of myself, scared out of my mind, dying, like that little sheep that's caught somewhere. Help me! I remember crying to God like that. Help me! It was like the little bleat of a lamb. And I think of our shepherd. I think of the one that's roaming the earth, listening for that cry. And he swoops in and he grabs that one. And then it says this. Listen to this. Verse 5. He swoops in. He grabs that one. And he lays it on his shoulders. This is so huge. This is every this is the whole reason I wanted to study this right here. He lays it on his shoulders. The word is epitithami. The word tithemai, we are going to come back to this, memorize this word. The word tithemai is very important. As we get into the story of adoption and inheritance, this is going to be crucial. Tithemai, this is what the word means. In the Greek, there are three words that translate into our English, and they all translate as the word appoint. All three words. Tithemai, histemai, and kaiamai. But... They all differ from each other in their posture. What do I mean by that? Well, tithemai means to appoint, but it has the idea of a horizontal posture, to lay. Histemai means to appoint, but denotes an upright position. And kaiamai means appoint, but it denotes a bowing or a, a prostrate position. For instance, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, please. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter tells us this very famous verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying, that's Tithemai, Behold, I am laying, in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen 
and precious. Do you hear how that word has the idea of this one has been appointed, but it's also in the posture being laid down. Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, a chief stone. Tithamai, the Tithamai has been laid. And this verse in 1 Peter chapter 2 is also going to be very important to our study. Because Peter is quoting out of Isaiah 28. And he's showing that this one has been laid. He is the Tithamai. He's the cornerstone. The cornerstone, we've got some builders in here. That cornerstone, an old building, that old, those old building uh, practices. We still do something similar to this, quite different, but they would take that first, that was the first stone that was laid. You dig your foundation, you get that nice square stone, and this is going to dictate and determine the whole project. I say we still do that because we do concrete footings. And let me tell you what, if our concrete guys screw up those footings, it screws, it can screw the whole project up. It makes our job so much easier, or harder rather. That cornerstone, when you set that stone, if you are a sixteenth of an inch off level, by the time you get to the other side of the project, that can compound to inches. Or if you're a sixteenth out of square on a hundred foot building, you could be three feet out of square. This one stone right here, so important. And this goes in the ground, and it has to be perfectly level and square and plumb. And this is what Paul Sarah Peter is telling us. He says, guys, the Tithamai has been laid. And I promise you, if you build on this, you are not going to be disappointed. Your building is going to be perfectly straight and true. That's what he says. Whoever puts his hope, uh, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, he says. In other words, build on that stone. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 1 real quick. Hebrews chapter 1. One more instance that this word is used. Hebrews chapter 1, the author tells us this in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And he says this, through uh, or whom he appointed, that's Tithamai, whom he appointed, whom he has laid as the heir, there's our word, the heir of all things. The Lord Jesus has been laid, and he is the rightful heir. Answers the question right there. Who is the heir? The Lord Jesus Christ. He has been laid down. Here is the error. And as we work ourselves back to the book of Ephesians, Paul throughout, and I have mentioned this a hundred times, but Paul throughout the first two and a half chapters, there is a phrase that overwhelms the book. And it is in him, in him, in him, in Christ, in the beloved. It's like 30 times in the first two and a half chapters, Paul keeps saying this phrase, in him, in him, guys, you're in him, you're in the beloved, you're in Christ, you're over and over and over and over. It's overwhelming. And this is a beautiful thought that you and I are in Christ. It is a beautiful thought. 
But I had said weeks and weeks ago, I think the word, the phrase, on Christ, is more accurate. And in the, in the Greek, the, the Greek is the epsilon and whatever. It's a preposition. It can be on, in, by, around, or whatever. And so very accurately can be interpreted on Christ. You are, that's what Paul is saying. You are on him. And I love the thoughts of both. But I think the idea of being on Christ is more accurate. That's what Paul tells us in chapter 2 of Ephesians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You are on Christ. You are built on that foundation. The book of Ephesians is the grace book of the New Testament. The wealth of heaven is being poured out on that error. And Paul keeps saying, guys, you are on, you're on him. And so in Luke 15, to close, this is, I'm done right now. On Luke, in Luke 15, it says this one, he comes in, he finds this sheep. And it says he lays him, he lays him on his shoulders. We are going to move forward in this parable and see how this one is brought in as the ear. But the word here in Luke 15 is epi-tithemi. Tithemi is the appointed one. And the word epi means on. You're on the tithemi, is what the author, or what the Lord is saying here in Luke 15. You have been placed on the tithemi, that cornerstone that has been laid, the heir, you are on him. This is this is the fountain. This is the source. We are moving through this story to learn of the nature of adoption and inheritance. And this in Luke 15, this is where it all springs out of. Ephesians 1, 2, 3. All that you have is because you are on Christ. You're on the Tithema. You're on his shoulders. And the beauty of this truth is that he's doing like this. And he says, guys, I'm never going to let go. I'm never let go. So in this first parable, we learn, we learn of a shepherd who loses one of his own. And he leaves behind. He forsakes. And he comes down on a rescue mission <clears throat> to find this lost sheep. And through death, he would find this lost sheep, placing it on his shoulders and securing it forever. This is the very, this is the very source. This is what I want you to understand. This is the source of your adoption. This is the source of your inheritance. All that you have of the Father is because we are on him. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this, this wonderful truth, Lord. This wonderful truth. Lord, we, we don't serve you, Lord, because what's in it for us. We serve you because we love you, Lord. We are overwhelmed like that woman who would come and anoint you with, with this costly ointment. We pray, Lord, we have the same heart in response to not what you've done for us, but who you are. But, Lord, it is, it is an added bonus, a fringe benefit of the, the wealth of heaven now being poured out on us because we are in you. We are on you, Lord. 
And we worship you and we praise you for that great truth. The half has not been told. We can't wait till our faith is, is made sight. It's made in, to- in complete reality when we get to see you face to face, Lord. What is it going to be like? Until then, Lord, we thank you for a time like this. We can open up your word. Uh, we pray that your, your word transforms us, Lord. In your name, amen.